Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and we have a channel called the New Books Network Seminar, where we publish interviews about books that we think will be broadly interesting to our broad audience. In this case, it's an interview published on New Books and Public Policy by Steve Pimpere with Jessamine Neuhaus about her book, Geeky Pedagogy, A Guide for Intellectuals, Introverts, and Nerds Who Want to Be Effective Teachers. This is a terrific book because it confronts a problem that many of our listeners face. That is, you were probably trained to do research and other professor stuff, but you weren't trained to be a teacher. And Jessamine confronts this issue head-on in her terrific book. We hope that you find it valuable in your teaching, and we hope you enjoy the following interview. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimpera, host of the Public Policy Channel. And today I am pleased to welcome Jessamine Newhouse, who is the author of Geeky Pedagogy, a guide for intellectuals, introverts, and nerds who want to be effective teachers, out recently from West Virginia University Press. Jessamine, welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Uh, it's lovely to have you. So so before we talk a little bit about the book itself, I wonder if you might just tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and how you got to this particular project. Um, sure, sure. I teach history and pop culture at SUNY Plattsburgh. I've been here since 2004. I earned my PhD in history in 2001, and I've taught as an adjunct, as a visiting professor, and now here at SUNY Plattsburgh on the tenure track, and I am a tenured professor. I have two other books in my field of uh, gender, gender studies, history of gender, and, and popular culture. This book grew out of my own personal experiences, and then my scholarship on teaching and learning. And I'd have to say it started way, way back for as long as I can remember, because as long as I can remember, I've loved to read and to write. And I've always been a a huge introvert. I need a lot of solitude to function. And I've always done pretty well academically, too. But when my son was born in 2001, and he, like my significant other, uh, was an off-the-chart extrovert from infancy on, and then when he became school age, it really struck me how different his experience was in the education system as an extrovert and also as, let's just say, a a lackadaisical student (laughs) And thinking about how differently he he and I experienced school really got me to thinking and living in my in my house, which is kind of a master class in the difference between nerds like me and normals like them. I've really started thinking about how this might apply to the classroom. So it was on my mind for a long time. So so let's 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 talk a little bit about about uh, you you early on talk about a a a gin is that how you would pronounce it rather than a gin? Yeah yeah I, <laughs> I, I like the uh, the boozy sound right? of gin. It, it echoes the the gif gif <laughs> argument. That's right yeah yeah plus a, it's a magical being. <laughs> it's a geek introvert nerd. And I definitely am not saying every single person in academia is all three of those things at the same level, but I do think it's pretty self-evident that people who earn advanced degrees are by and large pretty nerdy. 
which is as it should be because we're the experts and we are passionate about our, let's face it, strange and esoteric at times topics. Introverts are also disproportionately represented in academia because it requires a lot of a lot of solitary work and, and um, intrinsic motivation to earn an advanced degree. So geek introverts and nerds, gins. And and you you talk about that 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 idea that that sort of that geekiness idea as as being in the way that it that it plays out in the popular culture both both gendered and racialized. I wonder if you might talk a little bit about about how you see that playing out, and and we can then segue into the ways in which it might matter in the classroom. Sure. Yeah. Well, this book could not have been written twenty five thirty years ago. The way we think about geeks and nerds has really dramatically changed as the definition has become more commonplace and used more commonly. And as people um, who consider themselves geeks and nerds push back against gendered and racialized definitions, the, the big stereotype of a nerd beginning back in almost the, the first part of the 20th century is racialized as white and gendered as male. And that stereotype is still around a little bit, but the revenge of the nerds stereotype, the sharp division between athletes and nerds just doesn't exist as nearly as strongly anymore. For a lot of um, definitely my students and younger, nerd is a a word that just describes someone who's passionately in love with a subject and willing to engage it at a at a level that other people don't are, are kind of astounded by. So you hear people even refer to like sports nerds or um, fashion nerds, things you wouldn't think of as necessarily too nerdy. And I and I in the book really wanted to make an effort to not reinforce any of those gendered or or racialized stereotypes about nerds and geeks, because as I argue in the book, I think it's extremely empowering to lean in to our nerdiness and embrace our geekiness. It's it's what got us as far as we are and in our in our careers and as teachers. And like I say on my website, I want to encourage people to to use their big brains for effective teaching. Um, so that feels like a perfect, perfect segue. Um, as you've suggested earlier, right? It's it's that that when you when you look at these qualities that make us uh, interested in pursuing uh, a PhD and and uh, develop this this what you described as an enthralled engagement with complex topics, which I like very much because we we all can get sometimes sort of ridiculously excited about these incredibly sort of narrow, hyper specialized areas that you know that that I think lots of people don't necessarily appreciate except in the abstract. It's like, well, well, that's adorable that you care so much about this arbitrary weird thing. But that, again, doesn't necessarily make us effective in the classroom, right? Those are different, different sets of skills. And yet many of us, most of us are called upon to teach in addition to conducting research in our particularly arcane areas. And one of the things that I like very much about the approach of this book is that you 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 foreground that. You acknowledge that that for a lot of us, we really are not not only not trained to walk into a classroom and know what to do there, um, although I think that is changing of late. 
but but then how do we acknowledge these particular character traits for many of us and turn them toward a means of being effective teachers? So you organize the book along five, what, sort of key principles of effective teaching, awareness, preparation, reflection, support, and practice. And I wonder if we might just walk through each of those and give listeners a little flavor of what you're trying to communicate in each of those chapters. So why don't we start with awareness? What what do you mean by awareness and why does that matter? So I would say these are what I call them is uh, five five easy to remember categories of pedagogical activity. And this is part of my effort to empower everybody to think of themselves as teacher learners and as teaching as a lifelong learning endeavor that we're not just teaching, but we are acquiring new knowledge every time we step in the classroom and every time we interact with students. But that can become overwhelming quickly. So by saying there's not things you you check off on a list to becoming uh, Professor Perfect, who doesn't exist anyway. But these are five categories that you can undertake your whole career, do a little bit here, do a little bit there, go back to this, do, go back to that. Um, so that's, the, that's how the chapters are organized. And awareness, I begin with just exactly what you started the question talking about, awareness of who we are, and that starts with passions for our topic. You're right that that doesn't translate immediately into effective teaching, but it's a great starting place. And a professor's passion for their topic can often outweigh any other kind of shortcomings we might have or missteps we might take. People respond to people who are passionate about their topic, and students love when a professor loves their topic and they they respond to it very, very positively. So starting with awareness of who we are as big old nerds about our subjects is a step towards effective teaching. It also, as you are as you also mentioned, it also just really helps to acknowledge and be aware of a reality that teaching may not feed your soul in the same way that you're undertaking the study of your topic or your research does. And certainly as an introvert, being aware that because teaching is in large part a social interaction, that's going to be tiring and that's going to take different kind of energy and preparation and all the other things I talk about in the rest of the chapters. But acknowledging upfront that being an introvert requires a lot of time alone and teaching is not something you can do by yourself. <laughs> the other very important parts that I urge people to be aware of and just continually curious about and accepting that this is this is the reality. The very first thing I talk about is that you have to be aware that identity is important. Embodied identity, employment status, uh, and, depart- and um, department and university culture all impact how we teach and how we learn. A lot of scholarship in teaching and learning, otherwise just outstanding scholarship of teaching and learning, does not pay enough attention to the fact that embodied identity impacts how we teach and learn. There is a stereotype about 
what a professor looks like that impacts how students respond to a professor before a single word is spoken as soon as that person steps in their room and vice versa we everybody has on uh, you know unconscious biases and assumptions that we bring with us into the classroom and the widespread assumption about what a professor looks like and what a professor does is very limited you know it's basically a white guy in a tweed jacket who can lecture so brilliantly that people that the students can sit there without taking notes and magically learn that's what we see on TV. That's what we see in uh, movies. And that's not most of us. Now, to be clear, I, I'm not suggesting that the professors who are white guys in tweed jackets who are brilliant lectures, lecturers aren't teaching effectively. They, they are. They, they don't have to work hard. They do. But the things that effective teaching requires play out differently depending on our embodied identity. So for example, it's pretty clear, the scholarship is overwhelmingly clear that effective college teachers build rapport and demonstrate immediacy, immediacy with students. But what I have to do that as a white gender normative woman who's almost 50 is different than what my male colleagues do have to do, what my uh, colleagues who are a, a faculty of color have to do. Uh, my my expertise is not assumed in quite the same way as my male colleagues' faculty of colors expertise is not assumed in quite the same way. I have to be friendly and approachable. That's different for me than what some of my other colleagues have to do. But one, because I'm an introvert, and two, because I'm I'm gender normative female. So like I've seen scholarship of teaching and learning advise professors smile when they're with their students. Okay, yes, that's true. But when you tell me, you know, telling a woman she should smile more has different ramifications. So this is not in any way to say this is a this is an insurmountable obstacle, not at all, but it's just something you need to be aware of. Everyone needs to be more aware of. And the other thing to be aware of is that learning is hard. Learning is hard. I don't delve into great detail into the science of learning, which is an awesome new field that's full of, not even that new, but um, always has new insights. Uh, there's great, great books about teaching based in how our brains work, but it really boils down to learning is hard. And always being aware of that as a professor is important and as a gin even more so. Learning is fun for us. Oh, we've got a naughty new problem in our field that I, we can't make heads or tails of. That's like nerdvana. But for students struggling to grasp some of the foundational concepts in our field, that's really hard and draining and exhausting and it has emotional components to it. So that's another thing to be we need to be aware of. Um, learning is hard. Identity is important. Who we are and who our students are, not railing against, oh, they're, they're so underprepared. Ten years ago, they did this. Now they can't do that. You know, it is what it is. Teach, teach the students you have, not the students you wish you had. I wonder if that's an opportunity to talk about the 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 other uh, category you offer, which is support and the role that that plays in effective pedagogy. Yeah, sure. Uh, support I'm referring there to getting support for developing your own pedagogy, for developing our pedagogy. 
And it, this also really, really matters your individual teaching context. On some campuses, for some faculty, it's very easy to, ac- to, to access resources about teaching. They have an active teaching and learning center. They have support for attending teaching conferences. Other faculty, it's more difficult. They have to rely on maybe online resources. Some places have formalized mentoring systems. Others, you're just really tossed in and expected to excel. So I really try to encourage people in that chapter to seek out support for for developing our teaching approaches in whatever way works best for you. I find teaching conferences extremely helpful with a with a much more supportive environment than a lot of strictly academic conferences where there's a lot of, you know, showing off how big your brain is without trying to bring in other people. <laughs> teaching conferences tend to be more about here's something we're, we want to work on together to get better at. Uh, so that kind of support. One of the things I like so much about that is that we've, I think, all come to recognize that students need supports, right? We have we have tutoring centers, we have libraries, we have we have an increasingly large array of institutional supports that we make available to student understanding that that learning cannot be a, a, a solitary activity and some people need more help than others. I think we're only now starting to recognize that the same is true of us as teachers. Yeah, and it's hard. Yeah, that's hard for us to admit. Because our big fat brains have gotten us this far, all on their own. You know, we excel in our in our subjects, and I think a lot of us just expect that that's going to translate magically yeah. into being an incredible professor. And we're fighting against a major a, a myths about effective teaching, like good teachers are born, not made. Right. We have this incredibly idealized version of what learning is going to look like. And i that's why in my book, I very, very deliberately refer to effective teaching, not, not good teaching, not great teaching. I understand why people use those terms, but I think it feeds into that disempowering idea that, oh, if I'm not somehow transforming every student's life with Mary Poppins like magic, <laughs> then I'm not being a, an effective teacher. And especially for introverts where it takes us a lot of energy and like the second chapter is all about preparation. And some of that is is preparation in terms of syllabi and stuff like that. But a lot of preparation for us is preparing for the social interactions of teaching and learning and understanding that those are going to take more effort for you for me, for us, than um, than for a lot of extroverts who thrive. Well, and we're also we're fighting against right sort of those stereotypes that you've talked about and those cultural stereotypes as well. And that so much of what and I think the the popular consciousness of of good teaching it's performance, right? It's Robin Williams standing on the top of a yes. desk, oh, right? I, I mean, oh my gosh, right? That sort yes, of, I, of yes. stuff. Uh, I refer to that. It's right. specifically in the conclusion, I said, please, Robin Williams, Captain, my captain, would you please get Stop. out of my head? Stop it. Get out um, of my students' heads, too. But what, you know, yeah. one of the things that, that we know from that increasingly large body of research on teaching and learning that you made reference to is that that, that kind of, of big, large, performative 
male lecture driven is that's not necessarily where the most effective learning takes place and more and more it is the kind of preparation that creates a social space where students are working with each other and teaching each other and and i mean in some ways maybe this 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 takes advantage of us as introverts right because we don't need to necessarily be on the stage we can be quietly in a corner orchestrating learning activities that other people are directing yes yeah yes oh for sure and in fact it gives us i think a little bit of an edge in the third chapter which is about reflection because reflection does feed into a lot of introvert abilities and, and for that matter, intellectual and academic abilities, reflecting on what's working and what's not as in your individual teaching context with your students. This is a missing piece for a lot of faculty. And it doesn't have to be a huge major uh, time sucking undertaking, but paying more attention to what's working and what's not, definitely never ever limiting your reflection about teaching to student evaluations of teaching, which have some insights to offer us, but also can be highly problematic and especially depending on how your university uses them. So never ever limiting your reflection to the student evaluations of teaching, but always bringing a sense of curiosity to What's, what's working, what's not. And in fact, I even advocate, which sounds a little new agey, but, but don't freak out. I advocating uh, trying to cultivate uh, some gratitude practices as a geek, introvert, and nerds who are teaching, which basically boils down to paying attention to the things that are going really, really well and the gifts that you get as an educator, because they do exist, but they're so easy for us to miss, especially if you've got perfectionist tendencies, if you, if you're, if you, your negativity bias, where you get sucked into paying attention to the one student in your class who's troubled and bringing a lot of um, problems into that everyday situation, and your attention gets pulled away from, wait, there's, 15 other people who are doing incredibly good work in this class, but I'm not paying attention to it. I see people like on Twitter, someone will, will tweet, I just heard from a student who graduated a few years ago, they got this fantastic job. Uh, I just got an email from a student saying how much they enjoyed this project. Those are the moments that you need to reflect on as much as, wow, that lecture really tanked oh, that student was so pissed about that grade and they were, or, oh, this that situation really blew up and God, it took up so much of my time and energy to, to meet with the chair. But meanwhile, all the other great things that we're accomplishing, we need to pay attention to those as well. So reflection is not just a homework assignment. I'm suggesting for readers that it's going to require you going over and over all the mistakes you made, you're also going to find a lot of things that are going well. I'm Stephen Pimpera, host of New Books in Public Policy, a channel of the New Books Network. And we have been speaking with Jessamine Newhouse, who is the author of Geeky Pedagogy. Uh, as we work our way toward our conclusion here, Jessamine, uh, talk a little bit about practice. What, is, what does that mean in your mind? Practice. Well, here's the best and worst news. 
I can ever share with you about teaching. You can get better with practice. <laughs> so that is great news because that means all of us, whatever our individual teaching context, whatever specific challenges we're facing, can become more effective with every class. We can become more effective from the beginning of one class meeting to the end. The bad news there is that you need practice to get to become an effective teacher. And there's no tip you can employ, no technique you can use, no little teaching trick that's going to magically give you that practice. We just have to be able to do it. And for uh, contingent faculty, there's, there's um, you know, obstacles to accruing practice, to feeling like you can learn from your mistakes. We constantly tell our students and hope that our students can learn from their mistakes. The same is true for us, but, you know, if you've got that employment decision hanging over your head, it's a lot harder to, to chalk up something to, oh, well, I, I, I really learned from that. I can apply it next semester. So practice is actually, that's the shortest chapter in the book. It's really just about doing it and seeing yourself as constantly practicing. So practice as in like learning an instrument, always improving, but never like, hey, now I'm done. I'm a I'm the perfect, I'm the perfect teacher. No, it's it is a practice in that you're always building skills, learning new things, making new mistakes. It's a practice. And that of course ties us right back into the, I think, at least the reflection and the support pieces, right? Because in order to do that, you really do have to experiment in the classroom. I think this as I think about how my teaching has evolved over the yipes now two decades I have been doing it. It looks absolutely nothing like today what it used to, because it used to look like, you know, Robin Williams standing on the top of the table, right? <laughs> um uh, well, yeah, because we change our students right. change, curriculum changes. It's always, always changing. And, you know, and the, and the support piece for me, I know, is that because there are so many people doing research on effective teaching and learning, there's there are more opportunities for me to say, oh, wait, I'm, I'm a geek academic and I am always telling my students, well, tell me what the research says, right? Oh, like, oh God, I can actually <laughs> look to the research now and I have to trust yes. that I have to trust it, right? Yes. Yes. Oh, that's um, so true. That's what I, that's what I, I hope the, a big piece of the support chapter is about embracing the scholarship of teaching and learning. Even just reading one article on something that's really been, you know, a sticking point for you and your pedagogy can be so empowering. If you're a nerdy yeah. academic, finding research on it is kind that's, we know how to do that. Like we of any group of people know how to sit down, study something, and we emerge, you know, blinking out of the archives or out of the library in the sunlight, but we emerge knowing more about it. That's what we do. And we can do that with teaching and learning, uh, provided we don't let some of the messaging that can sometimes come through in the scholarship, let us get distracted. Like uh, there's a lot of great scholarship of teaching and learning that kind of implies, you know, if you just do this, this, and this, everything's going to be fine. <laughs> if you just do X, all your students are going to learn. Uh, 
this advice applies to everyone for all time, forever. It doesn't matter if uh, your, your sexual identity, your racial ethnic identity, your employment status, and that's not true. So as long as you can feel empowered, like in the book, I always talk about us, we, I'm not handing down dictates from on high. I've read some great, otherwise really great books and articles that the author is saying, you do this, you do that, you don't forget to do blah, blah, blah. Like they're not also struggling at times in the classroom, like they're not always learning. But we know from the scholarship for our students, when we talk about our class, what we're doing this semester, that empowers them as learners to think of this as our as our class. I can, I'm participating, I can learn, I can do this. That's how I talk to my readers in the book as well. We're we're all in this together. You have been listening to Jessamine Newhouse talking about her exceptional new book called Geeky Pedagogy, a guide for intellectuals, introverts, and nerds who want to be effective teachers from West Virginia University Press. It is it is a slim, punchy, powerful volume. So I hope that folks so I, I mean I mean that. I wouldn't I wouldn't I wouldn't say it here for people to listen to Thank if you. I didn't. I, uh, I but I I do try to be as humorous as I can. Some, that's that's my one other critique of otherwise uh, some really good uh, scholarship. Uh, yeah, well, taking it so so seriously. References. Yeah, <laughs> like so, like like learning is so so sacred. We have to talk about it in the most hushed and reverent tones. But it's weird. Like it's weird and it's tiring and it's some some days are just so bizarre. And you can have in one class you can have some of the best student interaction you could ever have and some of the worst in the same class it's crazy it's weird and it's funny we should we should be able to joke about it thank you jessamine thank you go get geeky pedagogy everyone thank you so much this has been stephen pimper a host of the new book of new books and public policy a channel of the new books network thank you for joining us today